Thanks, Barry. Hello, everyone. So, um, one evening, a couple of weeks ago, thanks, Greg, uh, my wife, Marietta, was busy doing homework with our eldest daughter, Abigail. She just turned eight. And uh, from where I was sitting, I could hear, it's not going well. You know, if you have, if you have young kids with homework, you know it's a, it's a battle. Um, so at one point, she instructs Abigail, you know, quite sternly, and she says, Abigail, now make me a sentence with the word calm. <laughs> so it's quiet for a few moments, you know, Abigail's thinking. And then suddenly she pipes up and she says very excitedly, Stay calm! Want ons gaan nou braai. You know, as a parent, as a father, it was a proud moment. You know? Absolutely. That's it, that's it. Now, unless, um, unless you're a first-time visitor, you will know that the last couple of months we spent quite a bit of time looking at the book of Haggai as we're getting ready to move into our own church building and into the new season of what God has for us. Now, today, next slide. Today we're going to stay calm and we're going to continue with Haggai. But most importantly, we're going to stay calm. So let's go there. Right, you can go to the next slide. Let's go to Haggai chapter 1. From verse 2. Okay. Sure. The word is obscured today. Not, not quite sure what's happening there, but don't worry. Stay calm. Um, I'll read it here. It says, um, from verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now you will note that both verse 5 and verse 7, well, maybe you won't note, but you might have heard, that both verse 5 and verse 7 contains the same phrase, which is consider your ways. Now last month, Henry did a wonderful exposition on the word consider, which is great. I can't do it the way he did, but I would like to note that this phrase, consider your ways, is actually a Hebrew figure of speech that literally means put your heart on your roads. Put your heart on your roads. So Haggai was asking the people of God, consider the direction your life is heading. Do you really want it to continue that way? In other words, think about where your life is heading. Where is your life going? Do you really want it to go down that road? So um, again, one evening, uh, just more than two months ago, Kevin sent through a message to ask that we work through the book of Haggai, and um, when his message came through, I was actually already in bed. 
I don't think I told him that, but not because he sent it through so late, but you know, if you as gray as what I am, you tend to go to bed a bit earlier, you know? So, so I'm lying in bed, I hear the message coming through, so now I read it, and I think to myself, Haggai, I can't remember the last time I read Haggai. So my initial reaction, my initial response was, I've got nothing, Haggai, nothing, not I. But then the next morning in my quiet time, I thought, well, I guess the least I can do is just to read through it, and then to ask the Lord whether he has something on his heart, and if so, that he would speak to my heart. So I read Haggai, and he did, to my surprise. So I made notes, and I typed an outline, and I sent it to Kevin, and a while later he responded saying, yes, at some point in the future, I'd like you to share on this, so um, please prepare. So I started preparing. But after, after I made a, a little bit of progress, I stopped. And I left it because I felt there was just no ways I could share with you today what I was putting on on paper. How can I, how can I sh- preach to others what I'm still struggling greatly to settle in my own heart, to live in my own life? In a word, I felt very unworthy. And I allowed these thoughts to weigh heavily on my heart until it got to the point where I said, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't share this. I'm sorry. I'm not the guy for this. And then soon thereafter, we were at, um, you know, the last time we were at Edgemeet, Kevin preached. And in the worship, again, my, you know, my thoughts turned to this. And again, I pray and I said, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I can't do this. Please, will you, will you find somebody else? And as, I, as I'm standing there, I decide I'm going to cancel with Kevin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose a, a relevant reason, whatever it might have been, and I'm going to cancel with him. But while I'm standing there, the Lord shows me a picture, clear as day. And it's a picture of a boat, an old boat in the middle of an ocean, in the middle of a storm. And the people on the boat are terrified. They are fearing for their lives. And they are getting ready to throw someone overboard. And as I'm considering this picture, you know, I'm looking at it in my mind thinking, okay, this is interesting. What, is, what does this mean? I suddenly realize, oh my goodness, that's Jonah. That's Jonah that they're about to throw overboard. And I get quite a fright because I guess in that moment, I, I understood that my actions were being compared to, likened to, to that of Jonah. You know, God instructed Jonah to do something. And what did he do? He said, sorry, Lord, sorry, can't share this. And off he went. And, uh, you know, I asked God whether he had something on his heart from Haggai. And he said, yes. And I said, sorry, Lord, can't do this. So I believe it was him cautioning me to not, you know, run away. So I think it's evident I didn't cancel with, with Kevin. <laughs> but why, why am I telling you this rather embarrassing story? Because I'm not standing here today with all my eyes dotted and my T's crossed. In fact, my handwriting is kind of messy at the moment. But by His grace and by His mercy and by the power of His Spirit, I am considering my ways. I'm putting my heart on my roads. And I want to ask you, would you today, would you consider your ways with me? Would you put your heart on your roads with me? You know, in a, in a couple of months, we are moving into our own new church building, 
which is, um, I mean, it's huge. I own you a house, you know? Can somebody give me an amen? amen? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, having your own building opens up a host of possibilities, of new possibilities, and it comes with a number of benefits. Just think with me quickly. Think of... Um, Think of the amazing first impressions we could make to first-time visitors. You know, they come to this big, white, shiny building, big hall. You know, it looks impressive. Think about how well-positioned we'd be for church growth. You know, even, even Andrew commented on the size of the hall on Facebook, and we want to fill it. And there's, a, there's an old saying, you know, many hands make light work. So the, the more hands there are, the more people can, you know, help. Think about, um, ooh, think about more space to worship here in front, you know? I don't know about you guys, but every Sunday, I'm so sorry he's not here. Every Sunday I look at Sherman and I feel so sorry for the guy. Because you can see that he just wants to fly. He wants to execute these big, bold dance moves, but he can't. There's just not enough space. So he, he ends up doing this, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's, it's this little... T -t 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 -t. I, don't, I don't know what it is. It's rather weird, and it reminds me of the 80s. I don't. But in the, in, the, in the new building, there will be so much space to fly in front for Sherman and for many others, you know? Think about, ooh, more parking, guys. No more parking on the grass and then traversing the obstacle course of mud, you know, or carrying your kids across the mud like I do. So better parking, think... Um, Sure, think more resources, better facilities, think kids' church, think coffee shop, think a prayer room where you can pray before the time and you don't have to freeze. It's, it, it's amazing. <laughs> and then my personal favorite, we'll no longer have to gather at, you know, let's say, 12 o'clock. We can gather at the godly hour of around 9 or so. No, no, 7 is way too early. Jeez, that is not godly. I'm sorry. But... Before we move, I believe we need to reflect on the words of Haggai. And we need to consider our ways. We need to put our hearts on our roads. Why? Because all things considered, there's tremendous potential for us to be a lot more comfortable in the new house. And building his house is not about my own personal comfort. Let's go to Acts 9.31. Or at least I'll go there. It says, um, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, you can ask the question, was this church growing because it was enjoying a time of peace? No. The, the key to the church growth you find in the second half of the verse, where it speaks about the believers, the saints, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, which can also be translated encouraged by the Holy Spirit. But walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit comes at a cost. And amongst other things, it comes at the cost of my own personal comfort. Building his house is not about me being or becoming comfortable. So when... So when Kevin sent through that message to ask that we work through Haggai, I was challenged with a thought. And the thought was, how do I get to the point where I focus more on his house than my own? Let's go to Genesis. We're going to be reading quite a bit from Genesis today. 23, verse 2 to 4, it says, And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. 
And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. When Sarah died, Abraham had been living in or journeying through the land which God had you know, promised to his descendants for best guess or best estimate, 62 years. 62 years. So after 60 odd years, how does he describe his residency? Does he refer to himself as a proud citizen of the land? No. Does he refer to himself as a permanent resident in the land? No. Does he describe himself as a foreign national? No. Does he at least, after 60-odd years, consider himself a local you know, in the area? No. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Now, depending on your translation, this can be translated visitor or stranger, exile, pilgrim, or resident alien. So what does it mean? This, this term, sojourner and foreigner, what does it mean? It literally means to dwell near or to have a home alongside of. It refers to a person living in a foreign land alongside of people who are not of his kind. In other words, to whom he does not belong or to a period spent in a foreign land without taking out or being granted rights of citizenship. This person is not simply one who is passing through, but a foreigner who has settled down, however briefly, next to or among the native people. It describes one who passes near, but also one who is passing on to something beyond this world. The sojourner and foreigner did not expect, expect, it, or expect to be regarded as a native of the place he resided. And it's interesting to note that the, the Bible often refers to believers as sojourners, and unbelievers they call earth dwellers, literally those who dwell on the face of the earth, those who have made the earth their permanent home. So when Abraham was standing in front of the Hittites, and he was saying, guys, um, I need land, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you, what was he saying? Well, he was saying, for a little while I've been living near you, next to you, but I've never been one of you. We are not of the same kind. I have no rights of citizenship. I've never asked for or expected any, and you've never offered or granted. I've briefly settled down next to you, but I'm actually passing on to something beyond this world, whereas you have made this world your permanent home. So question, are we, me and you, are we sojourners? Are we meant to live as sojourners? Are we meant to have the sojourner mindset? Let's go to 1 Peter 2 from verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, Beloved, I urge you as those who briefly live in a foreign land, alongside those of a different kind, without having any right of citizenship, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That group of people living together as one tribe and one nation, with the same nature and being of the same kind, those who have made the earth their permanent home and who don't serve God. So the answer is yes. The, the word considers us sojourners. Hear what David said, or look at what David said in Psalm 39, verse 12. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. 
Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. So if we are in fact sojourners, and we need to live as such, and we need to have the mindset of a sojourner, how do you recognize it? How do you recognize the mindset of a sojourner? Practically, what does it look like? I quickly want to share three things. Firstly, the sojourner mindset is evident in our seeking. It is evident in what we are seeking. Hebrews 11 from verse 13 says the following. Listen carefully. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now, that they, they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. In verse 13, they use the word confess, because it says, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. This word confess comes from the legal system, and it means that you agree with a charge brought against you. You agree with a charge brought against you. You confess to it in court. You openly acknowledge your guilt. Now, these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those they write about in Hebrews 11, they all confessed that they are sojourners. They all confessed it. So, for a moment, picture, if you will, the setting of a courtroom where a judge is reading a charge against them and he says, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, etc. You are being charged with being a sojourner, living next to us, alongside us, but never one of us. Never belonging to us. You have no rights of citizenship. You've never asked or expected, and we've never offered or granted. You briefly settle down next to us, but you're actually passing on to something beyond this world. And you've never expected us to regard you as a local. How do you plead? And then they, they respond and they say, guilty, Your Honor, on all charges. But it doesn't end there because verse 14 says, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. The word declare means to provide evidence. To provide evidence. So keeping with the picture of a courtroom where they've just you know, openly confessed and acknowledged, yes, we are guilty on the charge of being a sojourner. The judge now asks the question, but what evidence do you have to back it up. What evidence do you present to confirm your confession that you are indeed a sojourner? And the response is, Your Honor, the evidence lies in what we are seeking. The evidence lies in what we are desiring. You see, in verse 14 we read, they, uh, they seek a homeland. In verse 16, they desire a better, a heavenly country. Now the word, or the term seeking, implies a search Sorry, a desire for something of great value. So when I seek something, I desire something of great value. It actually combines two concepts, asking and acting. So to seek means I ask earnestly, and then I make an active attempt to find that something of great value that I'm searching for. So when you seek, you rearrange your priorities so that you can search for what you're looking for until you find it. The sojourner mindset is evident in what we are seeking. It is evident in our search for that something of great value. In other words, the priority of the sojourner is not what they're living in, but what they're looking for. The priority of the sojourner is not what they're living in, his own comfortable house, 
but what they are looking for, his house, his kingdom, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. He says, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat to what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles, the earth dwellers, seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The sojourner mindset is evident in our seeking. What am I seeking? Secondly, the sojourner is poor in spirit. The well-known Matthew 5, verse 3, it says, um, not sure whether, ah, there we go. You guys are awesome. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. A few weeks ago, again, my eldest, Abigail, the one morning we're getting ready for, for school, which really is an understatement because you are rushing through your routine to get ready for school, you know? Um, it's, a, it's a militant operation. And as we are rushing uh, and, and getting ready, at one point, Abigail stops me. No jokes. She puts her arm on me and she says, Dad, why is your beard so gray? <laughs> True story. Now, to be fair, at, at times it is a bit of a sore point for me. You know, when your beard is as gray as mine, you typically, typically get three kinds of responses from people. People either say something like, sure, dude, that's a, that's a really nice beard you have there, which coincidentally is also my favorite uh, reaction. <laughs> or they, or they just, just, just putting it out there. Or they say something like, um, hey, Father Christmas, you know? And they, they expect you to react like it's the first time you've heard that, you know? It's like, that's a good one. <laughs> or, they, or they look at my daughters and they, and they say, um, sure, you've got beautiful grandkids, you know? So, so that morning, I thought, I'm going to tease her a little bit. And I said, you know what? It's you and your sister. You guys are the reason why I'm so gray. To which she replied, me? I don't understand. So I said, well, it's all the stress and anxiety you guys give me. And when I said that, she burst out laughing. But she's laughing like I've just told her the funniest joke ever. And she's laughing and laughing. And eventually, she, she, she composes herself. And she says, oh, Dad, that doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> now, for the longest time, that's how I viewed Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't make sense. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? I mean, are we not rich in spirit? Do we not have the Holy Spirit inside of us? What does it mean? I quickly want to read you a very short excerpt from A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. He says, There is within the human heart a tough root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covers things, Sorry, it covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease, which is the roots of our hearts have grown down into things. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. Now, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, what was he saying? Well, the word poor as Jesus used it, actually referred to the common beggar you found in the streets of Jerusalem. 
You see, Jesus was drawing a parallel between the condition of our hearts and the conditions in which a beggar lives. A beggar possesses nothing. And as a result, their hearts are free from being ruled by things. Their hearts are free from being ruled by possessions. They are completely dependent on, uh, sorry, they are completely dependent on strangers. But the poor in spirit are those whose hearts possess nothing. God is free to completely possess it. They are completely dependent on him. And in so doing, they actually possess all things. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This scripture asks a very important question. Who or what is in possession of my heart? Who or what is in possession of my heart? I would like to give you an example of a sojourner poor in spirit. So I would like us to go back to Genesis. Chapter 22. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, and in case you weren't sure, it's the one whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And we all know the story. He gathered his servants. He, he uh, gathered the donkeys. They loaded up and off they went. And then from verse 9, he says, or it says, When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on a boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You know, in verse 2, God goes out of his way to comment on the strength of Abraham's affection for his son. He says, take your son, your only son. Yes, the son of promise you waited 25 years for. Yes, the son that Sarah conceived by faith miraculously when she was way past the age of childbearing. Yes, that son. Yes, the son that represents all the promises I made to you and all the covenants I made with you. Yes, that one, the son whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. And Abraham, he obeys. He obeys. And he's about to kill the boy when an angel of the Lord says, Abraham, stop. Don't harm the boy. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. In other words, Abraham, stop. Don't harm the boy. For now I know that I alone possess your heart. For you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham was poor in spirit. No one and no thing had possession of his heart. God was free to possess it completely. Abraham was completely dependent on him. And so when God provided a ram for the offering, instead of his son, Abraham had a revelation of who God is. And he called the place where he was about to sacrifice his son. He called the place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. In other words, the God who is more than enough to have full possession of my heart. You know, this is the only place in the Bible the only place where God is revealed by the name Jehovah Jireh. The only place. And it's in the context of absolute surrender. Because it is when I surrender all that I find that He is more than enough. 
Abraham was a sojourner, poor in spirit. But wasn't he also a rich man? Wasn't he also a rich man? He was. Genesis 13 verse 2 says, Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Not just rich, very rich. But isn't this then a contradiction? Being poor in spirit, but rich in material things? Is it not a contradiction? No. Why not? Because although Abraham had much, he possessed nothing. Not even his son. Although Abraham had much, he possessed nothing, not even his son. God possessed his heart completely. We are free to enjoy the many blessings God gives us. We are free. But we cannot allow it to capture our hearts. We cannot allow it to possess our hearts. And then thirdly, sorry. And lastly, the sojourner walks by faith. You know, at the beginning of the year, um, I went through a time where I struggled a lot with feeling very directionless. The two, two and a half years preceding it, I was on a very specific journey. I was heading in a very specific direction. And when that came to a conclusion, more or less, I said, okay, Lord, where do I go now? Where am I heading? I have no idea where I'm going. And this went on for a while until one day um, I told Marietta, I feel like Abraham, who went out not knowing where he was going, you know, Hebrews 11. And as I said that, I had this keen sense, or this just this sense, feeling, that I need to go and meditate on Abraham's journey in Genesis, you know, and also in the, in the New Testament. And I did for quite a while. And then the one day I read a scripture that I read probably a thousand times before, in Hebrews 11 verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. You know, and as I read it, it dawned on me that walking by faith doesn't necessarily mean that I know where I'm going. In fact, it's likely that most of the time I will not know where I'm going. And that's okay. Why? Because walking by faith does not require me. To know where I'm going. So what does walking by faith require? Well, according to this scripture, three things. We need to hear, we need to obey, and we need to trust. Why do I say that? To hear. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. Abraham was called, but he had to hear God's voice. He had to hear his voice. So we, we need to remain close to, sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So that when he speaks, when he calls, we hear it. But hearing his voice is not enough. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called. When God speaks, we need to obey. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves actively and we harden our hearts. And then thirdly, to trust. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Would you allow anybody to lead you anywhere where you don't know where you're going if you don't trust the person implicitly? The sojourner walks by faith, which means... Practically, daily, we hear, we obey, and we trust. Now, unfortunately, because of time constraints, I can't go into all three of these in detail. Some of you sound very relieved. But <laughs> I quickly want to mention two things. Just two things, and then we'll, we'll come in for a landing. Is that okay? 
very quickly. Okay. So, with regards to hearing God, the question people most often ask is, how do I hear God's voice? Sure, suddenly I can see I have everyone's attention. How do I hear his voice? I would like to humbly suggest that it's not the best or the most important question to ask. A better question would be, how do I position myself before him? Because hearing God or hearing his voice has got a lot more to do with my posture, my heart attitude, than it is in following a three-step process. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible are we instructed to go and figure out how to hear God's voice. Nowhere. But throughout the Bible, we are told how we should position ourselves before him. What our posture, what our heart attitude should be. Look at the scripture. David, Psalm 5 verse 3. He says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will prepare a prayer and a sacrifice for you. And watch and wait for you to speak to my heart. You know, from the scripture, it's clear. David is keen on hearing God's voice. He wants to hear from God, but his focus is on his posture, on his heart attitude. It's an attitude of sacrifice, of surrender, of exalting God. You know, A.W. Tozer also wrote, it's one of my favorite quotes. He says, as God is exalted to the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved all at once. When my posture, when my heart attitude is focused on exalting him, is focused on exalting God, the question of how do I hear his voice will take care of itself. And then secondly and lastly, with regards to trusting him, you know, we, we read just now in Genesis that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. What we didn't read was it took him three days to get there. It was a three-day journey. So he had three days to wrestle, to come to terms with what God had asked him to do. Three days. Now, nowhere in Genesis are we given even a hint as to what went through his mind those three days. But in Hebrews, there's one scripture, one that gives us a bit of insight. Hebrews 11, verse 17 to 19. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, he considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now this word considered, right, when he says in verse 19, he considered, implies a process of reasoning that leads to a settled conclusion. In other words, through careful study and reasoning, I come to a conclusion that is irrefutable. It is undeniable. It is beyond any doubt. Abraham considered what did he consider? He considered God's character, his attributes. He considered who God is. You see, faith is never blind. Faith is never blind. Faith is always based on the truth, the truth of who he is, the truth of the word. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Hebrews 11 verse 1. 
Abraham's reasoned and settled conclusion did not come from him leaning on his own understanding. But practically, David, practically, what does that mean? What did he do? What did Abraham do for those three days? Well, for three days, as he journeyed, as he sat down to rest, as he lied down to sleep, as he got up in the mornings to journey further, he considered, he reasoned within himself that God is loving, he is just, he is kind, he is faithful, he is always good, he is mighty, he never deceives me, he never lies. He is faithful to keep his promises. He promised me that in Isaac, my descendants would be numbered. Isaac doesn't yet have any kids, but now he asks me to sacrifice him. Therefore, therefore he came to a conclusion. What conclusion did he come to? That God was able to raise him even from the dead. You see, when we consider him, when we consider his word, we come to a conclusion that is irrefutable. It is undeniable, it is beyond any doubt, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3 verse 5. Can you imagine what would have happened if Abraham had, le had leaned on his own understanding? Trust. To trust God means to be completely dependent on him and utterly confident in him. The sojourner walks by faith. Which means that most of the time, we'll, it's likely that we won't know where we're going. But that's okay. Because we are called to hear and to obey and to trust daily. To, um, to end off. At the, at the start of this message, I told you that I am I'm considering my ways. I'm putting my heart on my roads. I'm, I'm taking a look at my life, and I'm asking myself, do I really want to go down that direction? I'm considering that building his house is not about me being comfortable. In fact, it comes at the expense of my comfort. I'm considering that the Bible calls me a sojourner, and I need to, I need to live as one. I need to have the sojourner mindset. My priority should not be what I'm living in, my own comfortable house. My priority should be what I'm looking for, his house, his kingdom, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm considering how much of my heart is possessed by a need for things and how he alone is worthy to possess it all. He who is more than enough. I'm considering my daily faith walk and that it's not about knowing where I'm going but it's about hearing him obeying him trusting him daily I am considering my ways would you today consider your ways with me